Chapter Forty One of Colonel Quaritch, V.C. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Colonel Quaritch, V.C. by H. Ryder Haggart. Chapter Forty One: How the Night Went. George sat opposite to him, his hands on his knees, the red nightcap on his head. And a comical expression of astonishment upon his melancholy countenance. Well, he said when Harold had done, blow me if that ain't a master one. And yet there's folks who say that there ain't no such thing as providence. Not that there's anything provided yet. Perhaps there ain't nothing there after all. I don't know if there is or not, but I am going back to see, and I want you to come with me now. Now said George rather uneasily. Why, Colonel, that ain't a very nice spot to go digging about on a night like this. I never heard no good of that place there. Not as I holds by such talk myself. He added apologetically. Well, said the Colonel, you can do as you like, but I am going back at once and going down the hole too. The gas must be out of it by now. There are reasons. He added, Why, if this money is to be found at all, it should be found this morning. Today is Christmas Day, you know. Yes, yes, Colonel. I know what you mean. Bless you, I know all about it. The old squire must talk to somebody. If he don't, he'd bust. So he talks to me. That Cossey's looking for his answer from Miss Ida this morning. Poor young lady, I saw her yesterday, and she looks like a ghost. She do. Ah, he's a mean one, that Cossey. Lorquest weren't in it with him after all. Well, I cooked his goose for him, and I'd give summat to have a hand in cooking that banker chap's too. You wait a minute, Colonel, and I'll come along. Gale and ghostess isn't all. I only hope it mayn't be after a fool's errand. That's all. And he retired to put on his boots. Presently he appeared again, his red nightcap still on his head, for he was afraid that the wind would blow a hat off, and carrying an unlighted lantern in his hand. Now, Colonel, I am ready, sir, if you be. And they started. The gale was, if anything, fiercer than ever. Indeed, there had been no such tempest in those parts for years, or rather centuries, as the condition of the timber by ten o'clock that morning amply testified. This here wind must be like that, as the squire tells us on in the time of King Charles, as blew the top of the church tower off on a Christmas night. Shouted George, but Harold made no answer, and they fought their way onward without speaking any more, for their voices were almost inaudible. Once the colonel stopped and pointed to the skyline, of all the row of tall poplars which he had seen bending like whips before the wind as he came along, but one remained standing now, and as he pointed, that vanished also. Reaching the summer house in safety, they entered, and the colonel shut and locked the door behind them. The frail building was literally rocking in the fury of the storm. I hope the roof will hold," shouted George. But Harold took no heed. He was thinking of other things. They lit the lanterns, of which they now had three, and the colonel slid down into the great grave he had so industriously dug, motioning to George to follow. This that worthy did, not without trepidation. Then they both knelt and stared down through the hole in the masonry, but the light of the lanterns was not strong enough to enable them to make anything out with clearness. Well," said George, falling back upon his favorite expression in his amazement, as he drew his nightcapped head from the hole. 
"'If that ain't a master one, I never saw a masterer, that's all. "'What are you going to do now, Colonel? Have you a ladder here?' "'No,' answered Harold. "'I never thought of that, but I have a good rope. I'll get it.' Scrambling out of the hole, he presently returned with a long coil of stout rope. It belonged to some men who had been recently employed in cutting boughs off such of the oaks as needed attention. They undid the rope and let the end down to see how deep the pit was. When they felt that the end lay upon the floor, they pulled it up. The depth from the hole to the bottom of the pit appeared to be about sixteen feet or a trifle more. Harold took the iron crowbar and having made the rope fast to it, fixed the bar across the mouth of the aperture. Then he doubled the rope, tied some knots in it, and let it down into the pit, preparatory to climbing down it. But George was too quick for him. Forgetting his doubts as to the wisdom of groping about Dead Man's Mount at night, in the ardor of his burning curiosity, he took the dark lantern and, holding it in his teeth, passed his body through the hole in the masonry and cautiously slid down the rope. "'Are you all right?' asked Harold, in a voice tremulous with excitement, for was not his life's fortune trembling on the turn? "'Yes,' answered George, in a doubtful voice, and Harold, looking down, could see that he was holding the lantern above his head and staring at something very hard. Next moment an awful howl of terror echoed up through the pit. The lantern was dropped upon the ground, and the rope commenced to be agitated with the utmost violence. In another two seconds, George's red nightcap appeared through the hole, followed by a face that was literally livid with terror. "'Let me up, for God's sake,' he gasped, "'or he'll have me by the leg.' "'He? Who?' asked the Colonel, not without a thrill of superstitious fear, as he dragged the panting man through the hole. But George would give no answer until he was through the hole and out of the grave. Indeed, had it not been for the Colonel's eager entreaties, Back to some extent, by actual force, he would have been out of the summer-house and halfway down the mount by now. "'What is it?' roared the colonel, in the hole to George, who, shivering with terror, was standing on the edge thereof. "'It's a blessed ghost, that's what it is, colonel,' answered George, keeping his eyes fixed upon the hole, as though he momentarily expected to see the object of his fears emerge. "'Nonsense!' said Harold doubtfully. "'What rubbish you talk! What sort of ghost?' "'A whitin,' said George, "'all bones-like.' "'All bones,' answered the Colonel. "'Why, it must be a skeleton.' "'I don't say that he ain't,' was the answer. "'But if he be, he's seven foot high "'and sitting airing of himself in a stone bath.' "'Oh, rubbish,' said the Colonel. "'How can a skeleton sit and air himself? "'He would tumble to bits.' "'I don't know, but there he is.' "'and they don't call this place Dead Man's Mount for nothing.' "'Well,' said the Colonel argumentatively, "'a skeleton is a perfectly harmless thing.' "'Yes, if he's dead, maybe, sir. "'But this one's alive. "'I saw him nod his head at me.' "'Look here, George,' answered Harold, "'feeling that if this went on much longer "'he should lose his nerve altogether. "'I'm not going to be scared. "'Great heavens, what a gust! "'I am going down to see for myself.' "'Very good, Colonel.' answered George, and I'll wait here till you come up again, that is, if you ever do. Thrice did Harold look at the hole, and thrice, like false Sextus, did he shrink back. Come, he shouted angrily, don't be an infernal fool. Get down here and hand me the lantern. 
George obeyed with evident trepidation. Then Harold got through the hole, and with many an inward tremor, for there is scarcely a man on earth who is really free from supernatural fears, descended hand over hand. But in so doing, he managed to let the lantern fall, and it went out. Now, as the reader will probably admit, this was exceedingly trying. It is not pleasant to be left alone in the dark, underground, in the company of an unknown spook. He had some matches, but what between fear and cold, it was some time before he could get a light. Down in this deep place, the rush of the great gale reached his ears like a faint and melancholy sighing and he had heard other tapping noises, or he thought he did, noises of a creepy and unpleasant nature. Would the matches never light? The chill and death-like damp of the place struck to his marrow, and the cold sweat poured from his brow. Ah, at last! He kept his eyes steadily fixed upon the lantern till he had lit it, and it was burning up brightly. Then, by an effort, he lifted his eyes and looked round him and this is what he saw. There, three or four paces from him, in the centre of the chamber of death, sat, or rather lay, a figure of death. It reclined in a stone chest or coffin, like a man in a hip-bath which was too small for him. The bony arms hung down on either side, the bony limbs projecting toward him, the great white skull hung forward over a massive breastbone. It moved, too, of itself, and as it moved, the jawbone tapped against the breast, and the teeth clicked gently together. Terror seized him while he looked, and, as George had done, he turned to fly. How could that thing move its head? The head ought to fall off. Seizing the rope, he jerked it violently in the first effort of mounting. "'Have I got you, Colonel?' sang out George above, and the sound of a human voice brought him back to his senses. "'No,' he answered, as boldly as he could, and then, setting his teeth, turned and tottered straight at the horror in the chest. He was there now, and holding the lantern straight against the thing examined it. It was a skeleton of enormous size, and the skull was fixed to the vertebra with rusty wire. At this evidence of the handiwork of man, his fears almost vanished. Even in that company, he could not help remembering that it is scarcely to be supposed that spiritual skeletons carry about wire with which to tie on their skulls. With a sigh of relief, he held up the lantern and looked around. He was standing in a good-sized vault or chamber built of rubble stone. Some of this rubble had fallen in to his left, but otherwise, though the workmanship showed that it must be of extreme antiquity, the stone lining was still strong and good. He looked upon the floor, and then, for the first time, perceived that the nodding skeleton before him was not the only one. All round lay remnants of the mighty dead. There they were, stretched out in the form of a circle, of which the stone kisk was the centre. One place in the circle was vacant. Evidently it had been once occupied by the giant frame which now sat within the kisk. Next he looked at the kist itself. It had all the appearance of one of those rude stone chests in which the very ancient inhabitants of this island buried the ashes of their cremated dead. But if this was so, whence came the uncremated skeletons? Perhaps a subsequent race or tribe had found the chamber ready prepared, and used it to bury some among them who had fallen in battle. It was impossible to say more, especially as, 
With one exception, there was nothing buried with the skeletons which would assist to identify their race or age. That exception was a dog. A dog had been placed by one of the bodies. Evidently, from the position of the bones of its master's arms, he had been left to his last sleep with his hand resting on his hound's head. Bending down, Harold examined the seated skeleton more closely. It was, he discovered, accurately jointed together with strong wire. Clearly this was the work of hands which were born into the world long after the flesh on those mighty bones had crumbled into dust. But where was the treasure? He saw none. His heart sank as the idea struck him that he had made an interesting archaeological discovery, and that was all. Before undertaking a closer search, he returned to the hole and hallowed to George to come down, as there was nothing but some bones to frighten him. This the worthy George was at length, with much difficulty, persuaded to do. When at last he stood beside him in the vault, Harold explained to him what the place was and how ridiculous were his fears, without, however, succeeding in allaying them to any considerable extent. And really, when one considers the position, shut up as they were in the bowels of a place which had for centuries owned the reputation of being haunted, faced by a nodding skeleton of almost superhuman size, and surrounded by various other skeletons, all very fine and large, with the most violent tempest that had visited the country for years sighing away outside. It is not wonderful that George was scared. Well, he said, his teeth chattering, if this ain't the masterest one I ever did see. But here he stopped. Language was not equal to the expression of his feelings. Meanwhile, Harold, with a heart full of anxiety, was turning the lantern this way and that, in the hope of discovering some traces of Sir James's treasure, but not could he see. There, to the left, the masonry was fallen in. He went to it, and pulled aside some of the stones. There was a cavity behind, apparently a passage, leading, no doubt, to the secret entrance to the vault, but he could see nothing in it. Once more he searched round. There was nothing. Unless the treasure was buried somewhere, or hidden away in the passage, it was non-existent. That was all. And yet, what was the meaning of that jointed skeleton sitting in the stone bath? It must have been put there for some purpose, probably to frighten would-be plunderers away. Could he be sitting on the money? He rushed to the chest and looked through the bony legs. No, his pelvis rested on the stone bottom of the kist. Well, George, it seems we're done, said Harold with a ghastly attempt at a laugh. There's no treasure here. Maybe it's underneath that there stone corn bin, suggested George, whose teeth were still chattering. It should be here or hereabout, surely. This was an idea. Helping himself to the shoulder blade of some deceased hero, Harold, using it as a trowel, began to scoop away the soft sand upon which the stone chest stood. He scooped and scooped manfully, but he could not come to the bottom of the kist. He stepped back and looked at it. It must be one of two things. Either the hollow at the top was but a shallow cutting in a great block of stone, or the kist had a false bottom. He literally sprang at it, and, seizing the giant skeleton by the spine, jerked it out of the kist and dropped it into a bristling bony heap on one side. Just as he did so, there came a gust of wind, so furious 
that buried as they were in the earth, they literally felt the mound rock beneath it. Instantly it was followed by a frightful crash overhead. George collapsed in terror, and for a moment Harold could not for the life of him think what had happened. He ran to the hole and looked up. Straight above him he could see the sky, in which the first cold lights of dawn were quivering. Mrs. Massey's summer-house had been blown bodily away, and the ancient British dwelling-place was once more, as it had been for centuries, open to the sky. "'The summer-house is gone, George,' he said. "'Thank God that we're not in it, or we should have been gone, too.' "'Oh, Lord, sir,' groaned the unhappy George, "'this is an awful business. It's like a judgment.' "'It might have been if we had been up above instead of safe down here,' he answered. "'Come, bring that other lantern.' George roused himself, and together they bent over the now empty kist and examined it closely. The stone bottom was not of quite the same colour as the walls of the kist, and there was a crack across it. Harold felt in his pocket and drew out his knife, which had at the back of it one of those strong iron hooks that are used to extract stones from the hoofs of horses. This hook he worked into the crack and managed, before it broke, to pull up a fragment of stone. Then, looking round, he found among the rubbish where the wall had fallen in a long, sharp flint. This he inserted into the hole, and they both levered away at it. Half of the cracked stone came up a few inches, far enough to allow them to get their fingers underneath it. So it was a false bottom. "'Catch hold,' gasped the colonel, "'and pull for your life.' George did as he was bid, and, setting their knees against the hollowed stone, they tugged till their muscles cracked. "'It's a-moving,' said George. "'Now then, colonel.' Next second they both found themselves on the flat of their backs. The stone had given with a run. Up sprang the colonel like a kitten. The broken stone was standing edgeways in the kist. There was something soft beneath it. The light, George, he said hoarsely. Beneath the stone were some layers of rotten linen. Was it a shroud or what? They pulled the linen out by handfuls. One, two, three, oh, great heaven! There, under the linen, was a row of shining gold coins set edgeways. For a moment everything swam before Harold's eyes, and his heart stopped beating. As for George, he muttered something inaudible about its being a master one, and collapsed. With trembling fingers, Harold managed to pick out two pieces of gold which had been disturbed by the unheaval of the stone, and held them to the light. He was a skilled numismatologist, and had no difficulty in recognizing them. One was a beautiful three-pound piece of Charles I, and the other a spur royal of James I. That proved it. There was no doubt that this was the treasure hidden by Sir James de la Mole, and he it must have been also who conceived the idea of putting a false bottom into the kist and setting up the skeleton to frighten marauders from the treasure, if by any chance one should enter. For a minute or two the men stood staring at each other over the great treasure which they had unearthed in that dread place, shaking with the reaction of their first excitement, and scarcely able to speak. "'How deep do it go?' said George. Harold got his knife and loosed some of the top coins, which were very tightly packed, 
till he could move his hand in them freely. Then he pulled out a handful after handful of every sort of gold coin. There was a rose noble of Edward the Fourth, double sovereigns of Henry the Eighth, triple sovereigns and gold crowns of Edward the Sixth, double royals, royals and angles of Mary, rose royals, spur royals, angels, angles, large sovereigns and laurels of James the First, double royals, and royals of Elizabeth, three pound pieces, broads and half broads of Charles the First, some in greater quantity and some in less, but all were represented. Handful after handful did he pull out, and yet the bottom was not reached. At last he came to it. The layer of gold pieces was about thirty inches thick by three feet six long. We must get this into the house, George, before anyone is about, gasped the colonel. Yes, sir, yes. Uh, but how are we going to carry it? Harold thought for a minute and then acted thus, bidding George stay in the vault with the treasure, which he was with difficulty persuaded to do. He climbed the improvised rope ladder and got in safety through the hole. In his excitement, he had forgotten about the summer house having been carried away by the gale, which was still blowing, though with not so much fury as before, and the wind-swept desolation that met his view as he emerged into the dawning light broke upon him with a shock. The summer house was clean gone; nothing but a few uprights remained of it, and fifty yards away he thought he could make out the crumpled-up shape of the roof. Nor was that all. Quite a quarter of the great oaks, which were the glory of the place, were down or splintered and ruined. But what did he care for the summer house or the oaks now? Forgetting his exhaustion, he ran down the slope and reached the house, which he entered as softly as he could by the side door. Nobody was about yet, or would be for another hour. It was Christmas Day, and not a pleasant morning to get up on, so the servants would be sure to lie abed. On his way to his bedroom, he peeped into the dining room where he had fallen asleep on the previous evening. When he had woke up, it may be remembered he lit a candle. This candle was now flaring itself to death, for he had forgotten to extinguish it, and by its side laid the paper from which he had made the great discovery. There was nothing in it, of course, but somehow the sight impressed him very much. It seemed months since he awoke to find the lamp gone out. How much may happen between the lighting of a candle and its burning away? Smiling at this trite reflection, he blew that light out and, taking another, went to his room. Here he found a stout handbag with which he made haste to return to the mount. Are you all right, George? He shouted down the hall. Well, Colonel, yes, but not sorry to see you back. It's lonesome like down here with these debtors. Very well, look out. There's a bag. Put as much gold in it as you can lift comfortably, and then make it fast to the rope. Some three minutes passed, and then George announced that the bag full of gold was ready. Harold hauled away, and with a considerable effort brought it to the surface. Then, getting the bag onto his shoulder, he staggered off with it to the house. In his room stood a massive, sea-going chest, the companion of his many wanderings. It was about half full of uniforms and old clothes. Which he bundled unceremoniously to the floor. This done, he shot the bagful of shining gold as bright and uncorrupted now as when it was packed away two and a half centuries ago into the chest and returned for another load. 
Twenty times did he make this journey. At the tenth, something happened. "'Here's a writing, sir, with this lot,' shouted George. "'It was packed away in the money.' He took the writing, or rather parchment, out of the mouth of the bag and put it in his pocket unread. At last the store, enormous as it was, was exhausted. "'That's the lot, sir,' shouted George, as he sent up the twentieth bagful. "'If you'll kindly let down that there rope, I'll come up too.' "'All right,' said the Colonel. "'Put the skeleton back first. "'Well, sir,' answered George, "'he looks wonderful comfortable where he lay he do, "'so if you're agreeable I think I'll let him be.' Harold chuckled, and presently George arrived, covered with filth and perspiration. "'Well, sir,' he said, I never did think that I should get dead tired of handling gold coins, but there's a rum world, and that's a fact. Well, I never, and the summer house gone, and just look at them there oaks. Well, if that bent to master one. You never saw a masterer. That's what you were going to say, wasn't it? Well, and take one thing with another. Nor did I, George, if that's any comfort to you. Now look here. Just cover over this hole with some boards and earth, and then come in and get some breakfast. It's eight o'clock and past, and the gale is blowing itself out. A merry Christmas to you, George. And he held out his hand, covered with cuts and grime and blood. George shook it. Same to you, Colonel, I'm sure. And a merry Christmas it is. God bless you, sir, for what you've done tonight. You've saved the old place from that banker chap. That's what you've done, and you'll have Miss Ida, and I'm darn glad on it, that I am. "'Lord, won't this make the squire open his eyes?' And the honest fellow brushed away a tear and fairly capered with joy, his red nightcap waving on the breeze. It was a strange and beautiful sight to see that solemn George capering thus in the midst of that windy desolation. Harold was too moved to answer, so he shouldered his last load of treasure and limped off with it to the house. Mrs. Jobson and her talkative niece were up now, but they did not happen to see him, and he reached his room in safety. He poured the last bagful of gold into the chest and smoothed it down. It filled it to the brim. He shut the chest and locked it, and then, as he was covered with filth and grime, bruised and bleeding, and his hair flying wildly about his face, he sat down upon it, and from his heart thanked heaven for the wonderful thing that had happened to him. So exhausted was he that he nearly fell asleep as he sat, but remembering himself, he rose, and taking the parchment from his pocket, he cut the faded silk with which it was tied, and opened it. On it was a short inscription in the same crabbed writing which he had seen in the old Bible that Ida had found. It ran as follows. Seeing that the times be so troublous that no man can be sure of his own, I, Sir James de la Mole, have brought together all my substance and money from wheresoever it lay at interest, and have hid the same in this sepulchre to which I found the entry by a chance, till such time as peace come back to this unhappy England. This I have done on Christmas Day in the year of our Lord, 1643, having completed the hiding of the gold while the great gale was blowing. James de la Mole Thus, on a long-gone Christmas day, in the hour of a great wind, was the gold hid, and now on this Christmas day, when another great wind raged overhead, was it found once more, just in time to save a daughter of the house of de la Mole 
from a fate as bad as death. End of chapter 41